How are we doing? I know this is hard. This is weird. We're praying for this big building over here, and we're seated in the parking lot. But praise the Lord for shade. Darren tried to get me to preach uh, last week on Psalm, is it Psalm 121. Yeah, that speaks of being in the shade of the Lord. Um, we may do that soon. Well, uh, we are trusting in the Lord's faithfulness. And to help us do that this morning, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy 1, and we'll look at verses 6 and 7. We've been looking at the beautiful bride of Christ, the elements of the church's obedience to prepare herself for the wedding supper of the Lamb. And so far we've seen elements such as New Testament preaching is important. We've seen that effective disciples are important. Christ-honoring people, loving instruction. And today I'd like to talk to you about spiritual protection. Spiritual protection. I'm going to do two things this morning. First of all, briefly, we'll look at 1 Timothy 1, 6, and 7. It's not a complex text at all. We'll look at this as our guide for spiritual protection, but it really gives us opportunity to do a second thing I'd like to do this morning, and that's to examine why spiritual protection is so necessary. And really, it answers the same question of how are we to be spiritually protected? Spiritual protection is necessary because of spiritual dangers to the church. I've preached on spiritual danger in the past. where There are enough of them to preach for many, many weeks. But let me just list a few spiritual dangers to the church. I'm not talking about specific theological dangers, just general overall dangers spiritually. One spiritual danger is allowing the world to set the church's agenda. Allowing the world to set the church's agenda. The church is victimized continually by whatever agenda unbelievers have come up with. When somebody on the news who doesn't know nor care about Christ says, churches ought to be, I just, I love remote controls because you just say off because they have nothing to say and they, they don't know what they're talking about. When have we ever been called to take up the church's, uh, take up the world's agenda in the church? We're not called to do that. Another spiritual danger, anything which moves you farther from Christ and his theology Anything which moves you farther from Christ in his theology. In 1985, something called the Jesus Seminar was organized. And this was to renew the quest for what they called the historical Jesus. In other words, the Jesus found in Life magazine and on, uh, on various uh, TV shows. The goal of the seminar was to review all of the sayings and the deeds attributed to Jesus in the Gospels and determine which of them were authentic. The result is, is they decided that they believe that in the Gospels, 18, one eight, 18% of what Jesus said, and 16%, 1-6% of what Jesus did was actually true. In other words, they ripped the Gospels out of the Bible, meaning we can't really know what our Savior said or did. And you might think, well, that's obscure. That has made its way into many, many churches in our nation now. That's a, that's a prevalent belief. How about this danger? Anything which turns the church into a consumer-driven organization. That you are no longer members, you are now customers. And what is the customer is always what? Right. No. When the first priority is to please the members instead of to please Christ, then spiritual deception has happened. We serve the members to the glory of Christ, but we're not here to please the members. And then one more, and we could list many, but one more spiritual danger 
ungodly influencers in the church. Ungodly influencers in the church. This could be leaders. This could be simply people who are vocal. This could be teachers even at a micro level. I have seen even one-on-one discipleship, which can be very harmful to the whole church because there's false teaching and deception happening that spreads because it's exciting and it's new and it's, and it's something different. The ungodly influencers in the church is exactly the dynamic that we come upon here in 1 Timothy Chapter 1, Paul is writing to Timothy as his representative in the church of Ephesus. And we come now to verse 6 of chapter 1, where Paul says, Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Who are these certain persons? We've said this before. They're teachers, influencers within the church. Uh, most or all of them may be elders within the church. Remember, the church at Ephesus was meeting in many different locations, and so these would be teachers of those various groups. Now, we ought to remember that Paul wouldn't be writing Timothy if at least some of those weren't correctable at some level. So we can't necessarily label anyone who teaches something that's wrong. We can't just label them as a false teacher they're perhaps correctable. But what is it that they're doing that's wrong? Well, in verses 6 and 7, there's four problems with these teachers. And I'm just going to give you a very short list because it's not complex at all. Four problems with these teachers. The first problem is they deviate. They deviate. It says certain persons by swerving. It's a word that means to swerve. There's no other way to say it. But in Greek, it means to miss the mark. It means to come up short. What are they swerving from from these? That is a reference back to verse 5. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. In other words, their faith has gone off into something that is that is not orthodox and they are not teaching because of the love of the church. They're not imparting information, imparting knowledge because they love their people. They've deviated. There's another problem. They drift. They drift. And this is very important. They've wandered into false teaching, not grounded in the word of God. And I want you to notice this. This isn't an instant shift. This isn't a right angle turn. This is a subtle drift. This is just a very subtle wandering. They don't know that they have wandered because they don't have a theological foundation. They don't have a theological base. They, they don't have a, a grounding. They simply wander into whatever seems like the next interesting idea. And that's not okay. There's a third problem with these certain persons. They digress. They digress. We've talked about their vain discussions in verse 4. But they discuss things which have no inherent spiritual value, no authority, no power. Once you get outside the realm of the word of God, then you have digressed. And the fourth problem with these teachers is that they desire. They desire, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now, you notice this. They're either Jews who claim to be believers or maybe they are Gentiles who are mildly familiar with the Old Testament, but they desire to be teachers of the law. That's specific to the Old Testament. But what's wrong with them? Well, they're inadequately trained. They don't know what they don't know. That makes them very dangerous, and they are too impatient to be trained. 
Once in a while, a young man will come up to me and say, I'd like to go into the ministry. Great. Four years of college, three or four years of seminary, maybe postgraduate work after that, and then maybe you'll be qualified. And you know how many lose interest? Almost all of them. Because what they want to do is just get up in front of the people right now because it makes them feel good. No. These are the problem. They desire to be teachers of the law without understanding what they're talking about. And here's the giveaway. This is the dead giveaway. They're more excited about having the authority, about having the pulpit, so to speak, than they are about actually loving the church. The whole point of imparting the word of God is love for people. And what this does is it betrays an inadequate view of the church. It betrays a low view of the church. It betrays a flippant view of the church. That the church is here to serve my needs. Now, given that in our times right now, the church is certainly viewed as no more important than bars, restaurants, and gyms. The church is viewed as less important than grocery stores. And in Nevada... The church is viewed as less important than casinos. Unlike those who desire power and influence based on a low view of the church and a high view of themselves, how are we to view the church? How is the church to view itself? How are we to have a high view of the church, which is the only way you can really afford spiritual protection, the only way you can give and provide her with spiritual protection? And let me put it this way. What are the basic non-negotiable hallmarks of the church of Jesus Christ, these non-negotiables without which the church is not the church. How do we have that high view of the church? And I'd like to use our time here in 1 Timothy 1 to kind of springboard into this. I'd like to give you seven non-negotiable hallmarks of the church. Seven non-negotiable hallmarks of the church. These are how we provide spiritual protection. This is spiritual protection. I'll get to the first one in just a minute. But the last 23 weeks or so has forced us to examine our ecclesiology, examine the church, I think more closely than ever before. I shared at a leadership meeting this past week that in all of church history, throughout church history, there have been periods of time in which certain areas of theology have had a great deal of focus placed upon them. Certain times where the, the deity of Christ, certain times the humanity of Christ, certain times the doctrine of the Holy Spirit has had this great emphasis placed upon it. There's never been an era like that for ecclesiology, for the study of the church. I think we're in it. I think we're in that time where we're examining the church closer than ever before. And for example, in March, we got an order to not gather as churches, and it forced us to look at Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. But what we said before is that our decision to not gather at that time was in response to the information that we had that people were going to be dropping dead all around us of coronavirus, that this was going to be a massive event. It wasn't a heart issue at all of not desiring to meet together. It wasn't a heart issue. We didn't view closing down briefly as a violation of Hebrews 10.25 any more than we would say that someone should be condemned for not going to church because they're recovering from heart surgery. You know, obviously, it's a temporary measure, a short-term measure. But as that short-term measure, which we were assured would only be a few weeks stretched into 13 weeks, 
That's a that's a fourth of our year. And now restrictions placed on churches are becoming more and more dubious. It's important that we evaluate what the non-negotiable hallmarks of the church really are. What is it that we're protecting spiritually? And so I want to ask you to indulge me for a little bit as we just do some basic ecclesiology. It's not comprehensive by any means, just some basic information. Here's our first non-negotiable hallmark. First non-negotiable hallmark, we'll just call this one worship in general. Worship in general. 1 Corinthians 11, Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, countless passages in the book of Acts. All of them point to the primary role of the church is to worship God in Christ. That is what we do. It's not just preparation for something. It is what we do. We are to ascribe to him what is due his name. And when the church gets distracted from her duty, when the church gets distracted from her privilege of worshiping God, we've forgotten that the Lord Jesus Christ, by his sacrificial death on the cross, opened the doors for us. Open the doors of heaven for us to behold our God, to express our love to God, to him for the free gift of salvation from sin. And our worship is, as we've said before, to include all the prescribed elements of worship, such as singing, which we've already established as a non-negotiable a few weeks ago. And so worship in general. There's a second non-negotiable hallmark. We'll call this one preaching in particular. Preaching in particular, and I I highlight this particular aspect of our worship because it's central in the life of the church. It's central to the life of our truth because preaching is the imparting of truth. It's, It's how the church accomplishes its role of being, as 1 Timothy 3.15 says, the pillar and buttress of the truth. How is it that we are the ones who hold the truth? It's very simple. We say it out loud over and over and over again. Paul said in 1 Timothy 5 that elders who preach and teach ought to be accorded double honor. Why is that? Well, it's very simple. Because it's through the preaching that all other worship is driven and accomplished. It's accomplished in the truth. How do we know how to worship God? It's through preachings, through the word of God. And listen, there is a dynamic to preaching which is different than teaching. And let me explain this. If pure information, teaching only, If that's all we needed, then what we would do is just send everyone home with books and homework assignments and say, turn in your assignments next week. We would give theological lectures. We would have all kinds of uh, PowerPoints and, and different sort of teaching aids, which are fine. But preaching has something different. Preaching has a call. Preaching has a demand. Preaching has a gravitas. Preaching has a weightiness. Preaching has a command to it. Preaching has an imperative. There's an imperative to loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ and obedience to his word. Preaching is not informal. It's formal. Listen, I just read the end of Peter's sermon in Acts 2 when he began that sermon on the day of Pentecost. Acts 2.14 does not say Peter hung out with the gang and had a convo about the truth. It doesn't say that he sat down and chatted over a cup of coffee. No, it says Peter stood up and lifted up his voice. It means to speak loud. And he addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. He said, listen to me, look at me, pay attention. There is a gravitas, there's a demand, there's a weightiness, there's a command. 
There's a third non-negotiable hallmark of the church, the observance of ordinances. The observance of ordinances. And just a little education here, the word ordinance without an I in it speaks of things you use to blow things up. That's not ordinance. This is ordinance. I want to make sure we're clear on that. Some of you got very excited when I said the observance of ordinance. No, it's ordinance. An ordinance simply means to put something in order. To put something in order, it's a prescribed practice. It's something you do over and over again. An ordinance is a symbolic outward observance of the truth of the gospel of Christ. And as you know, the New Testament simply commands two, both commanded by our Lord Jesus. First, we're commanded to observe the Lord's table, communion. This is the taking of the bread and the cup to remember the body and the blood of Christ. This is serious. This is weighty. It has a gravity to it. And in many ways, the Lord's table is really the climactic moment in Christian worship. We hear the truth, we sing the truth, and then we physically relive the truth of the gospel. We literally hold in our hand and take into our bodies an action that relives what Christ did. And then we have, of course, water baptism. Water baptism, this is a sign of being brought into the body of Christ. The declaration of allegiance to Christ, it's a symbol of the cleansing which has occurred in Christ. It's a symbol of identifying with Christ in his death as you go down into the water and identifying with him in his resurrection as you come up out of the water. Both ordinances were commanded by Christ. They are a central function of the church. Without the Lord's table, without baptism, we are not the church. There's a fourth non-negotiable hallmark. It's not one that's our favorite to talk about, but it is a hallmark of the church, and that is church discipline. Church discipline. During the Great Reformation, it was important to the Reformers to return to full obedience to the Scriptures, and that obedience had to do with the sanctification of the body of Christ, that not just anyone can say, I think I'll walk in off the street and be part of the church. The church was called to holiness and to be different than the world and, and to actively seek Christ's likeness. And that's why multiple times in the New Testament, the church is commanded to purify herself, to be a purified body. Matthew 18, to first call someone to repentance from an observable, clearly defined sin pattern in their lives. And if after many attempts at leading them toward desiring to repent and grow in faithfulness, that person, if they are recalcitrant if they don't want to respond they're to be removed from the fellowship until such time as they deal with that issue we have first corinthians chapter 5 the one who claims to be in christ and yet is unrepentant and here's a list of sexual immorality greed abuse called reviling drunkenness swindling first corinthians five thirteen says purge the evil person from among you we're to be purified 2 Thessalonians 3, beginning in verse 6, the disorderly, the troublemaker, the busybodies, the gossips, those who blatantly disregard the word of God, what do you do with them? Verse 6 says, keep away from them. The text goes on to say, have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. It's, this is an act of love because what are we hoping for? Always in church discipline, our hope is for restoration. Our hope is for reconciliation. You have Titus 3, verse 10, as for a person who stirs up division, the troublemaker, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, again in hopes of restoration. But the church that won't call for obedience and put some teeth to it, 
is not obeying the Lord, is not the church. One church historian wrote, Church discipline was also designated by various reformers as a hallmark of the church. John Calvin strongly advocated the practice of church discipline, and the disappearance of discipline in Protestant modernity, Protestant churches, is very much to be deplored. For a church that lacks the capacity, listen to this, the church that lacks the capacity to reprove and admonish its wayward members is in danger of losing continuity with the New Testament ecclesia, the New Testament church. In other words, a church which refuses to discipline for the purity of the body no longer has anything in common with the church in the book of Acts. They've become something different now. There's a fifth non-negotiable hallmark. This one's more fun than discipline. The fellowship of believers. The fellowship of believers. When the church was established on the day of Pentecost, the believers immediately began a fellowship together. I read this earlier, Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and what? The fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. As a matter of fact, in because of their fellowship, they were in danger of persecution from the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. James, the brother of John, was killed with the sword by Herod because he belonged to the church. Acts 12, verse 1. He belonged to the church, and so he was killed. Romans 12, beginning in verse 9, forms the basis for our membership covenant here at Grace Bible Church. It's so tied to fellowship. It's so a part of fellowship. James, or Romans 12, rather, verse 9 and following speaks of showing affection, speaks about doing one another and being honorable. It speaks of showing hospitality. It's a word that means being friendly to strangers. It means rejoicing with one another, weeping with one another, living in harmony with one another, associating with the lowly. If someone treats you like an enemy, you feed him, you give him something to drink. That's all associated with fellowship, with togetherness. The fellowship of the church is the heart of the church. It's the heart there's a sixth non-negotiable, and we'll call this the exercise of spiritual gifts. The exercise of spiritual gifts. This is what the church does. Now, spiritual gifts have a lot of mystery around them. Let's make this very simple. A spiritual gift is simply the Holy Spirit enabling a particular yearning and skill in the life of a believer. And that is to take care of certain functions in the church. The very same chapter, Romans 12, 6 through 8, says, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, that's the proclamation of the faith, preaching in proportion to the faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. The Apostle Peter is a little more simple in his explanation of spiritual gifts. He simply gives the idea of spiritual gifts as being divided into two categories, serving and speaking. Serving and speaking. 1 Peter 4, beginning in verse 10, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's very grace, whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. So what does Paul say? He says, let us use them. What does Peter say? Use it, your gift, to serve one another. That's non-negotiable. That is who we are in the church. One more non-negotiable. 
The seventh non-negotiable hallmark, the church is a gathering. The church is a gathering. Something very interesting I've been learning. Theologians almost never write on the fact that the church is a gathering. And I don't say that to their discredit. I say that to their credit. Because what they understand is that the gathering of Christians as being what the church is is so obvious, so completely right in front of us, so blatant, that, that theologians simply assume that the reader is going to understand that. They assume that. But I'd like to spend some time on the fact that the church is a gathering. And as a matter of fact, why are we even called the church in the first place? Have you ever thought about that? The English word church comes from the Greek word kuriakon, and it means a building, a structure that belongs to a kurios, a lord, a building that belongs to a lord. The Greek word ekklesia is used 114 times in the New Testament, and that's the word primarily translated church. Almost every single time is translated church. Once in a while, it's translated congregation or assembly, but almost always it's church. In classical Greek, ecclesia could refer to a meeting, a gathering of any kind for any purpose, a civic reason, political gatherings, even a sporting event would be an ecclesia. This is important for us to understand. The Old Testament, the Septuagint, uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, ecclesia, is the only Greek word used to translate the Hebrew word kahal, which means a convocation, an assembly, a congregation. Now listen carefully. In the Old Testament, ecclesia is never used of a philosophical construct. It's never used of an idea such as we are the church. Instead, it's always used of an actual gathering, an actual assembling of people together. In the New Testament, the most important and major use of ecclesia comes from the Lord Jesus Christ himself when he differentiated his ecclesia from all others that would call themselves an ecclesia. In Matthew 16, 18, he said, I will build my, what? Church. It is my ecclesia, he said. He claims he's going to build a new assembly, a new gathering, a people who are identified by the fact that they gather together in the name of Christ. So why do we still say church in our English translations? Why do we say church in the German Bible, kirka, in Scottish, in northern England, kirk? Why do we say that? In the 16th century, William Tyndale in his effort to translate the Bible for the common people, to translate it into English, he translated ecclesia 112 out of 114 times, congregation, gathering, assembly. And this was not making the Roman Catholic authorities happy. Did not make them happy at all. In fact, it highly upset them because he was specifically trying to clarify that the church is not a Building. It is not a building belonging to a curious, nor is it a religious institution or organization. All it is, is the gathering of Christ's people. And the Roman Catholic Church didn't like that. Why? Because the only thing you had to do to have a church was to have a bunch of Christians gathered. And you didn't have to have the priests. You didn't have to have the vestments. You didn't have to have a pope. You didn't have to have any of that. And so the Roman Catholic Church didn't like that. 
particularly because of the fact that Tyndale's New Testament was widely circulated. He was detained by the Roman Catholic authorities. In 1536, he was tied to a stake. He was strangled. He was burned in large part due to his translation of ecclesia to mean simply a gathering of God's people. They wanted to protect their institution. But unfortunately, the entrenched idea of the church as merely an institution, as a construct, as an idea only, was so ingrained that even the authorized English translation, the King James Version, stayed with church. And now virtually every English translation by tradition still says church. But let's put this in proper perspective. Let's translate ecclesia a little bit more precisely because this gives you a whole new emphasis on our understanding of what the church is. Acts twenty twenty eight. we are the gathering of God. 1 Timothy three fifteen. we are the gathering of the living God. Hebrews twelve twenty three. we are the gathering of the firstborn. 1 Corinthians fourteen twelve. we are to build up the gathering. Paul wrote to the churches of Galatia, and he called them, if we say ecclesia correctly, the gatherings of Galatia. Ephesians five twenty four. the gathering submits to Christ. And here's the crux of the matter. Here's the whole enchilada this morning, if I could put it that way. I gave you six other non-negotiable hallmarks of the church. But the gathering, those things which make a Christian gathering distinct from any other gathering, all six of those hallmarks depend on a right understanding of ecclesia. Every single one of them is dependent on the fact that we gather in person, that we gather together. Let me walk back through them. Non-negotiable hallmark number one, worship in general. Yes, you may worship God as an individual, but the overwhelming emphasis in Scripture is the regularly scheduled meeting together of the assembly for worship. The theologian Milton Erickson wrote, quote, The early church came together to worship on a regular schedule, a practice commanded and commended by the Apostle Paul. And he's speaking of 1 Corinthians 16.2, in which Paul commends their meeting every Lord's Day together, every Sunday. Ephesians 5.19, keep this one in your mind, says that we are to address, quote, one another. We address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Theologian Wayne Grudem wrote, quote, In relationship to God, the church's purpose is to worship him. Worship in the church is not merely a preparation for something else. It is in itself fulfilling the major purpose of the church with reference to its Lord. That's how we understand worship. It is something we do together. Now, what about in the Old Testament? What if you went back 3,500 years and you asked an Old Testament saint, went back 3,000 years, what is worship to you? Well, we know from Scripture. Psalm 7, 7, let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Psalm 22, verse 22, in the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. Psalm 22, verse 25, my praise in the great congregation. Psalm 26, verse 12, in the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. Psalm 35, 18, I will thank you in the great congregation. In the mighty throng, I will praise you. Translation, large gatherings are better. They're good. They're good. I, I, I have many others. We could do Psalm 40, Psalm 68, Psalm 89, Psalm 107, Psalm 111, Psalm 149, Psalm 150. In the congregation, in the assembly, in the gathering of God's people is where we worship. 
That's in the past. What about in the future? How does heaven view worship? Is it an individual event? Do we see a scene in heaven of a lot of individuals in their houses worshiping God? No. Revelation 4, an assembly of angels never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Revelation 4, you have the assembly of elders before the throne saying, worthy are you, our God, our Lord and God, to receive worship. Revelation 5, angels and saints in assembly singing to God. And how about this assembly in heaven? Revelation 5, verse 11, then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads, that means ten thousands of ten thousands and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. What does that mean? It means that ultimately worship finds its climactic moment when all the people of God are gathered in one place. Worship is meant to be together. It's meant to be together. What about the second non-negotiable hallmark, preaching in particular? Preaching in particular. We did preaching via live stream for the 13 weeks that we observed the shutdown, and we're thankful for that technology. Yes, it's still the proclamation of the truth, but there's a hollowness to it. There's a ring of disappointment to it. It's not the same. Why is that? Well, let me give you two reasons that it's not the same. It's inadequate. First of all, preaching is meant to be at its best in person. Preaching is meant to be at its best in person. And listen carefully, it's in conjunction with all the other elements of our worship. They go together. Acts 2.42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Preaching is a package deal. It goes with fellowship. It goes with the Lord's table. It goes with our singing. It goes with our prayers. It's not an isolated event at its best. If we really believe that, we would say, I'm going to be recording a sermon, listen to it, and then 10 minutes later, go off by yourselves and pray, and then go ahead and text somebody and say, I enjoy fellowshipping with you from a distance. That doesn't make any sense. It's a package deal. It's meant to be at its best in person. The second reason that preaching is meant really ultimately to be together. Preaching is given by a shepherd to whom you are directly accountable for obedience to the word of God. Do you know what I can do right now with you? I can make very uncomfortable eye contact with you. And you're all dreading that. Oh, Lord, please don't let me yawn when Steve looks at me. I understand that. I've seen people break their jaw trying not to yawn. But you know what that's called? That's accountability. That's accountability. There's a relationship. There's an eye contact. There's a palpable presence together. You parents with small children, have you ever tried to assert your authority with your kids over the phone? It doesn't work. You'd better do that. Click. You can't do anything about that. Authority is best given in person. There's an accountability If we really believe that live streaming was adequate or we believe that was a legitimate substitute, then we should save tens of thousands of dollars every year, get rid of our facility and just use a small studio to preach. None of you believe that, though. You're here. You're here. We are to keep in mind that legitimate preaching is based on gathering. And listen, the only reason, this is very important, the only reason we gave our live streaming time something of an air of legitimacy, listen carefully, 
is because we had already been a gathering fellowship prior to that. That's the only reason. If some clown just says, I think I'm going to start live streaming sermons in my living room, and everyone who watches is now part of Grace Livestream Church, you would all say, no, that's not okay. You would say that's not a church, that's not an assembly. What about the non-negotiable hallmark of the observance of ordinances? What about that one? Every single example or command of the Lord's table in the New Testament is in the context of a gathering, in the context of an assembly. There is an accountability to God and to one another when we receive the Lord's table together. 1 Corinthians 11 commands us to, to observe our own hearts as we look around, literally looking around at those around us. Oh, no, I'm not getting along with this person. I need to make that right. I need to forgive them in my heart. And by definition, baptism, baptism is a public declaration of allegiance to Christ. It's deeply connected to being inculcated into the life of the church, the assembly of Christ. The very first Christian baptisms in Acts chapter 2 were in a crowd. They were in a congregation. Why don't we just say, well, I'm so glad you came to faith in Christ. Go home and fill your bathtub up and go underwater. Why do we not say that? Because that doesn't show anybody anything about your allegiance. How about non-negotiable hallmark number four, church discipline. Church discipline, Matthew 18, being expelled from the fellowship in hopes of restoration. 1 Corinthians 5, purge the evil person from among you. 2 Thessalonians 3, keep away from them, have nothing to do with them. In Titus 3, verse 10, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Listen, the final step of church discipline is expulsion from the gathering, from the assembly. A church that preaches and expects holiness, and those who refuse this unrepentantly are expelled from the gathering with a hope of restoration. That's what we're to do. But listen, if the church isn't gathering, then church discipline amounts to nothing more than having your name marked off of an Excel spreadsheet somewhere. It's meaningless. There's no loss of fellowship because fellowship and gathering didn't exist in the first place. How about the non-negotiable of fellowship of believers? The fellowship of believers. Nineteen times the New Testament uses the Greek word koinonia to speak of our fellowship with God and in Christ and our fellowship with one another. And it's a, it's a rich word. It's translated numbers of ways in the English Bible. Fellowship. Contribution, participation, taking part, sharing. It's a rich word that speaks of a close, enduring relationship, generosity, communion together. Koinonia is tangible. It is love that works. It's love that's doing something. It's an association that's shown by a common enjoyment of one another's company because of Christ. It is an expressed fellowship. Let me put it this way. The Apostle Paul commanded the church of Rome, Corinth, and Thessalonica to greet one another with a holy what? Kiss. We're even uncomfortable saying that out loud, aren't we? Without a mask? What was a holy kiss? Well, it was a cultural way to express love and fidelity and togetherness. Listen, they weren't texting emoticons and they weren't blowing kisses. They were big, fat, sloppy kisses that left people uh, with drool on them because it said... We're that close. We're together. It was, a, it was a close communion with brothers and sisters in Christ. 
More seriously, though, remember I said that James was executed by Herod, Acts 12, verse 1, quote, because he belonged to the church. How did the authorities know that? They didn't check a membership list online. They knew he belonged to the church because he gathered with the church. He gathered with them. He was assembled with them. What does the Apostle John say in the book of 1 John? He says of people who go out from the gathering that they were not of us. They were they are not part of us because they were never of us. How do they know that? Because they're out of the gathering. They're not gathered. The fellowship of believers is non-negotiable and it's tied to gathering. What about the non-negotiable of the exercise of spiritual gifts? Romans 12, 6 through 8 lists seven basic spiritual gifts. I want you to take out the variable of technology for just a moment. Take out technology and let me ask you, can you preach without gathering? Can you serve one another without gathering? Can you teach without gathering? Can you exhort without gathering? Can you contribute to the ministry without gathering? Can you lead in the church without gathering? Can you do acts of mercy without gathering? No, 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 no. You can't. Listen, worship in general, preaching in particular, the observance of ordinances, church discipline, the fellowship of believers, the exercise of spiritual gifts, they're all dependent upon the ecclesia being a gathering, an assembly. Which brings us around to the question, what does the state, what does the government have the right under God to do? We refrained from assembling for 13 weeks because coronavirus was going to be the next Pearl Harbor. It was going to be the next 9-11. We need to establish a priority here, though. James Montgomery Boyce, in his Systematic Theology, he gives really an outstanding scriptural analysis of the relationship between church and state. He shows that there are really only four possible views of the relationship between church and state what he calls God and Caesar. The first view is the view of God alone. God alone. This completely removes ourselves from all society, all interaction with human authority. That we say that all human authority is evil, so we're going to go live in the mountains somewhere, we're going off-grid, and we're going to just wait for the return of Christ. But Jesus didn't have that view. He paid taxes that he didn't have to pay. He even treated Pontius Pilate in a polite and respectful manner, even though Pilate's authority came from God. He didn't say to Pilate, your authority is completely irrelevant. He simply reminded Pilate that any authority he has comes from God. And so, no, we wouldn't take the God alone view. The second of four possible views is the Caesar alone view. The Caesar alone view. This is very simple. This is the view of the false Christian. This is the view of the lost person. The government becomes God. See also the far-left philosophy of government. But this can't be right. This can't be right. God's representative on earth is the church, and we exist partially to reign in an unchecked Caesar. Only an unbeliever says Caesar alone. John 19, 15, the unbelievers cry out, We have no God but Caesar. Why is the church so necessary Because without God, there's no objective means by which the government would know how to rule. How do you make a policy? All good policy is based in the word of God. There's a third view. Boyce calls this the Caesar dominant view. The Caesar dominant view. 
Pontius Pilate, if you recall, wanted to release Jesus. It was the right thing to do. But because of his fear of Caesar, he was fearful that if he didn't give the rioters outside the court at the trial of Jesus their way, they would report him to Caesar. And so he executed Jesus because he had a Caesar-dominant view. Boyce says this, quote, The third option is one in which God and Caesar both properly exercise authority, but Caesar is dominant. This is Boyce saying this, not me. It is the option of cowards. If God's authority is recognized by all, it is evident by definition that he must be supreme. Those who favor Caesar do so generally only because they fear him. And there's only one more possible view, opposite of the Caesar-dominant view, the God-dominant view. The God-dominant view, Caesar's authority is given by God and God is in the dominant position. And so from this position, the Christian can respect the state so long as the state gives laws that are righteous, that are good. But the church can and must, in fact, remind the state of its limitations of power and the absurdities of its own arrogance against going against what God says. The church can and must remind the state of its accountability to God. There's only one possible correct option, and that is the God-dominant view. Jesus reminded Pilate that his authority was derived authority, derived from God. It was not original authority. It was not authority instead of God. And listen, it was not even authority equal to God. And so the question then is, does the church simply keep its mouth shut when the state creates laws or mandates that require us to compromise our faith? Do we simply believe everything they tell us without questioning or do we just stay out of it altogether? Do we tell the state, you leave us alone and we'll leave you alone? Is that what we're to do? No. We're absolutely not called to stay out of state affairs. Yes, our first priority is the preaching of the gospel. Yes, the kingdom is our first priority. But part of the proclamation of the gospel is that we're to be salt and light. We're we're not given boundaries to that. We're not given limitations to that were to be part of the restraining influence of sin. If we were called to just stay out of state affairs altogether, we wouldn't cry out then against wicked laws such as legalized abortion, wicked laws such as the legalized perversion of God's creation of marriage between a man and a woman. We're called to speak out. We're called to call the government to accountability when they have violated not only God's law, but our own laws. To call the state to righteousness and to point out sin, by the way, has incredibly large precedent in church history. John Knox, the great Scottish reformer, met with Mary, Queen of Scots, on numbers of occasions. He chastised her for her support of the Catholic religion. And listen to this. When Mary was imprisoned for her apparent role in the murder of her own husband, John Knox publicly called for her execution. He publicly said she needs to die for her sins. And you might say, well, that's church history. That's not a hermeneutic. Well, then let's use the Bible. How about the Old Testament prophets? One of the main functions of the Old Testament prophet was to call out and to challenge corrupt and sinful what? Government. 
Nathan was sent to King David to confront his sin. Elijah was sent to King Ahab to confront his sin. Isaiah 7, Isaiah is sent to King Ahaz to encourage him. Jeremiah 13, God said to Jeremiah, say to the king. Jeremiah 21, God said to Jeremiah, say to the king. Daniel chapter 5, Daniel rebuked the king and said the judgment of God is coming upon you. And like the prophets, the church is God's saved representative on earth. We work to support and demonstrate submission to the God-appointed government. And we love and support law enforcement because Romans 13 tells us to love and support those who bear the sword on our behalf. But no government, for any reason, has the right to stop worship in general, preaching in particular, the observance of ordinances, church discipline, fellowship of the believers, and the exercise of spiritual gifts, because all of those are completely part of our gathering. They're part of our gathering. And so we're compelled to say that is not within your rights. We stop gathering for a time in a temporary effort to slow down coronavirus. But remember this and listen carefully. And for those of you who are going to see this on live stream also, beginning in Acts and all throughout church history, the people of God have gathered and done so at great risk to themselves. It has always been a risk to gather as God's people. It's always been a risk. I want you to listen to this. When times are bad, what's our greatest priority? What's our greatest priority? You remember I told you to put in your mind Ephesians 5.19, which commands us to gather together in worship, singing to one another. What else is in the immediate vicinity of Ephesians 5.19? Just a couple of verses earlier. Ephesians 5.15 and 16 Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Listen to this. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. So when the days are evil, when the world is upside down, when nothing is going the way you're used to it, when wickedness reigns, what should you do to make the very best use of your time? Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, when the days are evil, that is the very time that we should gather. That's the very time when we should be together. Maybe the form of that assembly will have to be creative. Maybe we meet in the shadow of a big cement wall. But when the days are evil, we gather. We gather are the church, the assembled bride of Christ. In fact, Christ is proclaimed simply by the existence of the church. And the existence of the church is known only one way. There's only one way the church is known, and that is by her gathering, by her assembly. 1 Corinthians 14, beginning in verse 23, says, If therefore the whole church comes together, literally, if the gathering assembles, how much more can you say? If the gathering assembles, and Paul goes on to say that when the unbeliever hears the word of God, hears the gospel from those in the gathering from one another, quote, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you, plural. And where does this happen? It happens in the gathering, it happens in the assembly. Our church motto 
is Colossians 1.28. Him we proclaim that we might present everyone mature in Christ. Listen, if we do not gather, we deny the very essence of Colossians 1.28 and we have missed our calling. It is the core of the church. And so what is our first line of defense in the spiritual protection of the church? We assemble, for we are the ecclesia. We are the gathering of Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, we live in difficult times, and it is forcing us to make choices. We are gathered this morning, doing our very best to walk that line between honoring our government, and yet our government has no inherent right whatsoever for any reason to disallow the gathering of Christ's congregation. And so we thank you for this opportunity, Lord, but we do not give thanks to the government for that. It is not their right to give. We give thanks to you. For we became Christ's congregation when Jesus on the cross said it is finished. We became Christ's congregation when at the, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came and indwelt 3,000 brand new believers into the church and they immediately assembled. We became Christ's congregation as each of us individually were drawn to by the Holy Spirit, drawn to faith in Christ. And we immediately, our, our yearning, our, our hope and our dream is to immediately gather with others who similarly love Christ. And so we are the assembly of Jesus Christ by the decree of God not Caesar. We thank you and we love you for this small gathering. We thank you for all the gatherings all around the world who are faithfully getting together to proclaim your name, who, yes, are taking risks from multiple sources. And yet, Lord, we're told in Ephesians 5 that we are to make the best use of the time because the days are evil and the best use of our time is to gather together as the assembly of God to worship our Lord Jesus Christ. Until that day when we are all gathered together, all under the banner of Christ, all in the great throne room of God, until then, may we be faithful now. We pray these things in Christ's name and for his glory alone. Amen.